You're listening to Denver Orbit. Episode 15. Everybody's looking for something. Welcome to Denver Orbit, an audio magazine that features voices, stories, and music from the Colorado creative community. I'm Ryan Connell. And that's the last time you get to say those words for a while, and that's sad. It's very sad. It's also kind of exciting. It is kind of exciting. Uh, It's time for this old Dick Grayson to turn in his Robin costume and become Nightwing. Four people are going to get that joke. (laughs) Yeah, but those four people are going to love that joke. This is Ryan's last time in the co-host chair for a while. We will talk more about what he's doing and why in a bit. Uh, But first, we've got a chat with Josiah Hesse, a song from the band Spells, and I will have something more to say at the end. Uh, Before that, though, if you have an idea for a piece or a comedy bit or a song or anything creative, really, contact us at denverorbit at gmail.com. And uh, let's go get started. Right. A little over a year ago, I introduced my friend Ryan to my friend Josiah. You see, they both grew up evangelical Christians and subsequently left the church. More than that, though, they're both writers who explore Christianity and culture. Given that they had so much in common, I decided to bring some microphones along when I introduced them. And this is that conversation. I am Josiah Hesse. I'm a 34-year-old writer living in Denver, Colorado. As a journalist, I write about a lot of things, politics, science, crime, the arts, uh, sociology. Uh, Religion is a big one, uh, particularly evangelicals. And yes, I wrote the novel Carnality, which is a piece of historical fiction about evangelicals in America, kind of a psychological horror story. My name is Ryan Connell. I am a 35-year-old writer and historian. I am particularly interested in culture uh, and how that shifts and the the intersection between culture and Christianity, how they shape each other. I grew up in New Mexico. Uh, I was homeschooled, so graduated early, um, went to a little seminary in Dallas, Texas, uh, and then came back and was an interim kids pastor and did some youth ministry for my dad before becoming an inner city missionary for about a year. You, you mentioned that you uh, grew up in an Assembly of God church, yes. right? Yeah. Uh, I I went to a lot of different churches in my area. Like I was kind of a junkie for it, so I was going to I think four different churches, uh, maybe nine times a week. Uh, but one of them was an Assemblies of God church, and I go to all their camps and conventions. Okay. Did did they have those uh, oh, in yeah, Mexico? Absolutely. You you went to the church camp. Most yeah. of my summer would be spent at those camps, um, either just kind of hanging out or actually attending themselves. And then we had a big youth convention uh, every fall 
like a weekend long convention. Oh yeah. Uh, which is what did you go to those? Oh yeah. Every year I went to four conventions every school year. What, like, did you go to any of the big main ones, like Acquire the Fire? I went to Acquire the Fire in Minneapolis. Okay. And that uh, surprised me because it was, uh, um, it wasn't as much of the the fun stuff that you would do during a convention. Like, we'd always go to an amusement park and, you know, go to a mall or something. Like, we'd be in a big city like Des Moines. Yeah, you get to, like, uh, yeah, it's your big city day. Yeah. And with Acquire the Fire, you were just in the auditorium all day. And granted, they had all the kinds of pyrotechnics and audio adrenaline played. And uh-huh. It was uh, a big thing. But, like, that was something where it was a real... They didn't, like, sugarcoat it that much. It was a real, like, we're going to give you sermons and, you know, drill a whole bunch of information into your head. And we're not going to do a whole lot of uh, the fun stuff. I would like to hear a little bit before we talk about how we lost our faith about how you found it. I mean, I know we were both raised in church, but I'm sure you had a moment where you were like, yes, this is, this is for me. Uh, absolutely. And then at the same time, there was always a thread of doubt, uh, lingering beneath there. Um, uh, for anyone who's familiar with the documentary Jesus camp, there's a famous scene of a young blonde boy named Andrew Summercamp, who, um, weird name for that movie uh who he goes up uh on stage when everyone's giving their testimony and he's like i have to tell you guys i'm just i'm having a hard time believing in god and it makes me feel like a phony i don't like it and i want to believe i just he's struggling and watching that as an adult i'm like oh my god that was exactly how i felt at that age so i had the lingering doubt which was always um kind of pushed away by the idea that that's the devil talking to you that's the supernatural Mm -hmm. warfare of satan trying to lead you astray but um when you're in a pentecostal church you always have uh those moments of rapture available to you with uh me it's the idea of music and dancing with a community of people to a sentiment that you really cherish, like praising God and uh, God being your salvation, it can give you this huge feeling in your heart and in your head. And I never really had the kind of solid intellectual uh, belief in God um, because there would always be questions coming up, even since I was a little kid. Um, But... I definitely had a huge emotional belief that I could tap into and that would override any sort of doubt that I had in my head because it would just be this rush of a sensation where I'm like, this is the presence of God. This is the Holy Spirit in my heart. And how could I not believe in this? It's obvious that God is touching me right now. Is that uh, something that, like, do you have a lot of those experiences when you were a kid? Um, to, to a degree, I think like if we're going to use the Jesus camp as a good example, I was more the kid with the rat tail. Levi. Yeah. Levi that, that preached. Um, and maybe it's because I was so immersed and so surrounded with it that I didn't really have any lingering doubts. Uh, my faith was never questioned really. I mean, as a kid, uh, and I, I think that even though I was just super Christian and surrounded by Christianity, uh, I, felt maybe that like I couldn't convert until I had some sort of sin. And so it was really around the time that I hit puberty and uh, started thinking about sex and then feeling super guilty about sex that kind of coalesced. I I think 
this is probably this is not something I have actually told much, but I think the first time that I ever like ejaculated was so afraid because I had no zero sex education and thought that I had broken something or like, uh, like thought that I was going to die because of what happened and scared like literally the hell out of me. And it was like the Saturday before I went to church camp. And then, so like Monday night, like I just like ran to the altar and repented and, um, became on fire for the Lord. So I was around 14 when that happened. I started preaching at 15. Uh, so became much more, I think, intellectually involved in regards to doctrine, not maybe not asking about whether or not it was true, but in regards to defending it in regards to bringing sinners into the fold, my questioning and even my exposure to any kind of seed of doubt happened much later and maybe uh why it was so traumatic for me because it was like it was of course the bible is true but so my focus was on like what's the best way to interpret the bible and what's the best way to live out the bible and how do you get people who are not living out the bible to live out the bible so like my intellectual curiosity was very driven towards that and especially in regards to holiness because i always felt just inadequate and insufficient um so my doubts were not god doesn't exist but it was there's no way that god could ever love me like there's no way that i could live up to god because i'm still lusting and i'm still you know talking back to my parents and I'm still doing whatever it is that I, I do, like whatever it was that I considered so incredibly sinful that, uh, I mean, a lot of times I would cry myself to sleep in repentance because of a total fear that I was going to miss the rapture or total fear oh, that I was yeah. going to die in my sleep and like somehow miss it. And I think that's the thing that people don't realize about the, um, potential harms of religion and childhood is that you're, you're putting something into people's heads that as an adult, you can have some kind of context for either you understand it uh, on some intellectual level, or you just don't take it into your being. Uh, you don't think about it all the time. Like a child would uh, from a child's perspective, Noah's Ark, uh, the creation, uh, Jesus resurrection. It's not all that difficult to believe. It's something that you can, easily take into your psyche and uh, make up your view of the world. So when you have something like the rapture or hell, the idea of eternal torment, it's something that's going to weigh very heavily on a child's mind because it's not just like this uh, sort of ephemeral concept that's out there in the world. It's with you from the second you wake up to the second you go to bed and it will have drastic uh, consequences on your emotional stability. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I like, I remember once when my brother and I and a couple of the other, the kids of the church staff, like it was a summer day and we were playing how to go seek in the sanctuary. And we went in back into the offices and no one, none of our parents or any of the adults were in the offices. And we immediately assumed that it was the rapture that had happened. And we immediately run back into the sanctuary and we're crying and weeping and repentance. And it just turns out that they had bought a new church van and everyone was out in the parking lot. And uh, which is something that the parents thought was kind of funny, but like, I mean, it's really traumatic. Right. Uh, and I remember also like around that time and even, even into my early teens, 
uh, not being able to sleep because I'm so, uh, so afraid of hell for myself, but also because, you know, our neighbors were Mormon and I like Sean, he was my age. And so I would wake my mom up and be like, Sean is going to hell mom. Well, and that's the thing that doesn't go away with adulthood is the, um, the uh, squaring the circle of salvation. I used to think that, uh, the, wrong thoughts like if i just question the existence of god that that was a blasphemy against the holy spirit and there was nothing you could do for that there's no repentance right. you're, done. you're done so the idea oh uh with belief the one thing that jesus does make clear uh it, it was actually the apostle paul where he says if you believe in your heart that jesus christ is lord and god raised him from the dead you shall not know death, and you will have everlasting life. Right. It's that key word, believe. Mm -hmm. Belief isn't anything you can choose. Belief is something that is so ephemeral, it can disappear. Love right. disappears. Passion for your art or, or whatever uh, fades away. These are things that we can't really quantify or hold on to uh, without a lot of effort. And I think that's what made it so difficult for me to lose my faith. It was several years, really, uh, of, of slowly chipping away because I had had, after years and years, I had all of these intellectual defenses, <laughs> uh, not intellectual defenses in the way that you would argue with someone, uh, an intellectual point, but within my own head, I would not allow my thoughts to explore certain ideas. But from the age of like 18 to 24, there were just all these different books and conversations and uh, challenges I'd had um, to try and keep my faith afloat while being in the world, while wanting to be a writer, while wanting to explore things and have experiences and not just be shut away. But I, I couldn't anymore. It, it just, it couldn't withstand those experiences was there a particular breaking point or mm -hmm. something that kind of traumatic happened or is it more like entirely gradual well it it sounds more dramatic than it was uh but it, there, there was this one point where um i've been reading tom robbins even cowgirls get the blues uh i was in uh, living in san francisco it just had these very strong very educated very thought out arguments uh as to why christianity is um harmful or uh, not intellectually viable and I remember just standing in the middle of my I had an apartment in the hostel that I was working in and just standing there and I just whispered to myself I don't think there's a god and it sounds like a very easy thing to do for someone who doesn't grow up in belief but that's that's that, a big deal it was a deliberate confession it wasn't just an idea that I was throwing out there it was stamping it down saying it with my mouth Believing it in my heart, I do not believe there's a God. And I wanted to like cross over to the other side with that action, knowing that with the beliefs that I had in the past, that statement would damn me to hell. But I am now at a place where I do not believe hell exists, and so I am confirming myself an atheist. And, and I assume this is the case with you as well. Tell me if I'm wrong. But it was my intellectual curiosity to prove people wrong about the Bible that made me dig in to the Bible. And uh, there was a moment just before the thing in San Francisco where I was reading uh, uh, um, the uh, Apostle Paul's uh, letters, and he was just saying all these horrible things about women. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, a lot of uh, arbitrary rules that just didn't uh, work with me. I mean, this idea that women should not speak in public and women should not have any kind of leadership in the church. I was like, this is the book I'm going to for intellectual guidance. This is how I should live my life. This seems absurd and antiquated. Like, how can I devote myself to this? But I was going to the Bible to reinforce my faith right. to, to feel like a stronger Christian. Was that also the case with you? Uh, yeah, very similar. Um, <clears throat> I think there's a, a few big key things that kind of took me away from the faith, and I imagine that they'll all resonate with you in, in one way or another. I like I used to uh, be a street preacher. My Bible school was in like a suburb of Dallas, and I would go every weekend to this area called Deep Ellum, which is about three blocks by three blocks of punk rock clubs, tattoo shops, uh, sex shops. Um, it was like the kind of awesome alternative culture in the late 90s, a lot of goth kids. Uh, and because of it being Dallas, there was a ton of people out there like there's a, a huge competition for people street preaching on we on corners and uh so i would go out every friday and saturday night and um, pass out tracks and try to talk to people about jesus and one night i got out there and i always went to this little coffee shop to kind of pray beforehand and i heard these kind of goth wiccan kids behind me say i swear to god if one more christian talks to me i'm gonna fucking kick their ass and i took that of course as an invitation and because you want to be a martyr yeah and also because i don't know like as a challenge uh and so i just sat down and i was like i'm a christian and we started talking and they instead of kicking my ass kicked my ass intellectually by asking a lot of questions about um church history and uh, a whole bunch of different just like <clears throat> philosophical problems with God that I had never heard of before. And I just said, give me a week. I'll be here next Friday night. Uh, give me a little bit of time to do some research. Uh, I'll have an answer for you. And, you know, and we did that. We did that kind of consistently for maybe a couple months. You know, I, I didn't see them every week, but I would see them sometimes and I'd be like, oh, hey. And they would ask another question. And I, and I never found any solid answers for them but i was definitely trying to win them over and at the same time i as somebody who's you know preaching in front of marilyn manson concerts and different things like that i started thinking to myself these people that i meet i wouldn't feel comfortable bringing them to my church because i don't think that anyone's going to be nice to them uh they look so different they act so different they're gay uh and people I know like the pastor at this church I was in the Bible school makes fun of gay people from the pulpit and I know that like I don't feel like they're going to find Jesus at this place I feel like they're going to be alienated and then mm -hmm. that made me kind of go like well what's wrong with that picture and uh the biggest thing for me was I had major depression and anxiety which may have been caused by the way we were raised it may sure. have just been um tertiary uh incidental but since we didn't believe in depression um, or anxiety, we believed that that was a spiritual attack or a lack of faith. I, when I confessed to my pastors that I was feeling that way, they would say, you know, like just pray through it and fake it until then, because you're in leadership and you need to be showing that you're strong. So I just would go back to praying. And I think there's a period of time when I was maybe 19, 20, I would pray about five or six hours a day. Um, just so determined to get through this. Uh, but of course my beating myself up for not getting over my depression only made my depression worse. Right. Um, that 
correlating with these major questions that no one no one even seemed to think were big questions when I would bring them up uh, and they just kind of dismissed them and so like I felt very isolated and alone trying to figure this out I felt like I was the only one who was terrified of hell and terrified of the rapture like you said uh, thought that I was the only one struggling with all the stuff that probably everyone in that church was struggling with and I remember going to the altar and praying until everyone else had left and just crying until I couldn't cry anymore and I got up and I said God you know where to find me um, I can't do this anymore I can't seek after you anymore I don't know what to do I don't know what's wrong with me give me a Saul of Damascus type of situation I'm I'm out and uh, you still waiting on that experience still waiting on that experience <laughs> I thought it's I had at that time I did mushrooms but it turns out <laughs> just Christmas lights. I think that's a unique thing that uh, you and I share that even uh, former believers who are atheists today don't have is that we've continued to center our lives around this culture and this history, even though we not only don't believe it, but part of us is a little bitter and a little angry about it. Maybe I, I can't speak for you, but maybe that does fuel me to some extent. But there's also just a deep abiding fascination mm -hmm. with it. Um, and, and I have that as well with uh, carnality, with writing these books. I can't really talk about it that much with my family or, you know, the kind of stories I'm writing about uh, Jesus Camp or right now working on that story about how horror films are Christian propaganda. That's nothing really I can bring up in casual conversation when sure. I go home for Christmas. So there's a limited amount of things we can talk about. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. And. Um, if you were to analyze yourself and, and play uh, armchair psychiatrist, why do you think it is that you have trouble letting go of uh, this culture and the faith and the ideas of Christianity? One idea that comes to mind, and I have no idea how valid it is, is that there might be a part of me that wants to go back there. Mm. You know, the way that Trump supporters talk about making America great again and having the sentimentality for the 50s or the 60s there might be a part of me that feels a, a comforting warmth uh, with Christian rock and televangelism. Uh, I still feel like I'm, it, it's part of who I am as an evangelical, um, very much what I would identify as. I mean, I'm still an atheist, but sure. I'm an evangelical from Iowa. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, I, when I have conversations with people who had our backgrounds, I often say that evangelicalism is our first language it's our mother tongue and in the same way that like if you grow up speaking french and then you learn english a large part of what you have to do is translate in your mind what's happening and i think uh i still perceive the world through an evangelical lens and then have to think of it first as an evangelical and then have to think about it through my agnostic lens that i've developed like it's agnosticism is my second language and like it's so evangelicalism is always going to be more comforting to me it's always going to be more comfortable like when i go into a mega church mm -hmm. i still feel at home on some level there's another part of me that's like oh Freaking my out. god i hate these people this yeah. is a nightmare but there's some part of me that's like you belong here mm -hmm. these are your people yeah and i i get it i can speak the language i know exactly how to act and i think i mean you're absolutely right when you talk about the influence that evangelical and just Christianity as a whole has had on America and 
you know, <laughs> only a few of us are recognizing that and seeing that. And it's this kind of shadow on American culture that permeates everything. But mm-hmm. um, those who don't know that language and can't recognize it just don't see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's value in people like us exploring and, and writing about that influence and the way that it shaped us, uh, even for people who've never stepped inside of a church. Josiah Hesse is a freelance journalist that writes for Vice, The Guardian, and Esquire, and is the co-founder and editor of the Denver literary magazine Suspect Press. He is also the author of the psychological horror novel Carnality, Dancing on Red Lake, which is available now. The sequel, Carnality 2, Sebastian Phoenix and the Dark Star, will be out this summer. Hey, are you on the internet? Yes. Because we are... What? We've got a sort of active Facebook page and a slightly more active Instagram. And, hey, speaking of Instagram, the Denver-based label Snappy Little Numbers reached out to us there, and they sent us over some songs. It was tough to choose which one to play first, because they're all pretty good, but we decided to go with Deceiver by Spells. And here it is.
seek him here, they seek him there. His clothes are loud, but never square. Spells is a five-piece rock juggernaut from Denver, Colorado. They are vacation rock, to be exact. They produce short blasts of intense melody and driving rhythms that are custom-made to entertain the band members themselves and serve as an excuse to go play shows in cities that have beaches nearby. Snappy Little Numbers is now on the cusp of being a household name in the world over. Focused on excellence in music and packaging, SLN is dedicated to the fine art of analog format, especially vinyl, but maybe a cassette on occasion. Both has a vessel of optimum sonic reproduction and a way to cling to our swiftly vanishing youth. You can find out more at snappylittlenumbers.blogspot.com and snappylittlenumbers at Bandcamp as well. The song Deceiver is on Spell's just-released 7-inch EP, Big Boring Meeting. We'll have links to all of this in the show description. Finally, we've got an essay from our own Ryan Connell, where he will explain just what the hell it is he's up to. When Josh and I first started working together on this podcast, he really only had one request, that we never do a story on Jack Kerouac. This request immediately made sense to me, the all-too-handsome writer and co-founder of the Beat Generation who immortalized his time in Denver in his book On the Road, has perhaps been overly venerated here in our fair city, at least among the creative community. The few normal people I know have never even heard of the guy. So my mentioning Kerouac now might come across as some sort of last day on the job, middle finger to the man kind of thing. But in reality, it's just an unavoidable part of this story. Plus, I don't think Josh actually cares. I first read Kerouac's 1958 novel Dharma Bums when I was 23 and transitioning away from the fundamentalist evangelical world that, before then, had been the only existence I'd known. And I know it is cliché to the point of a near-epidemic a young man discovering the tales of bohemian adventure by London, Hemingway, Hunter S. Thompson, or whoever else, and being overcome by a zeal and real thirst for the full experience, the juiciness of life. A zeal usually lived out by being very drunk and obnoxiously pedantic at dinner parties. But it is nonetheless still true that reading that book authored the trajectory of my life. At that time, I was a blank slate looking for a new identity, and Kerouac's desire to deconstruct and examine the American values of conformity and consumerism was very appealing. We both felt we were lied to. We were both on this quest to find deeper truth and a more colorful existence than the narrow black and white life we felt entrapped in. And I love seeing the world through his eyes. Money and marriage and the trappings of status no longer held sway. All that mattered now to me was truth and beauty and love. This is why I decided to become a writer. And though over time I came to see Kerouac as an unreliable teacher, too consumed with self-indulgence and blinded by his sexism, cultural appropriation, and the myopia of his own privilege, and I found my ideals in truth, beauty, and love expressed more clearly in other people's words, music, and art. But I still found myself dreaming of joining what Kerouac called the Great Rucksack Revolution and wander freely around the country, seeking truth and experiencing everything. And as he says, also by being kind and also by strange, unexpected acts, keep giving visions of eternal freedom to everybody and to all living creatures. And I feel I should punctuate that sense by adding man or you dig or maybe just a small clattering of bongos. 
when I got laid off in the first week of December and then three days later discovered that I was being outpriced of my apartment that, incidentally, Kerouac once also lived in, I decided this was perhaps my one big opportunity to do something romantic, foolhardy, and probably quite stupid. I decided to live on the road for a while. And though this will be partially a quest to find myself, and yes, find myself is here code for drugs and sex, there are also spiritual and journalistic components to this endeavor. I've always been fascinated by the idea of God. It is one of those things like sex or death and very few others, actually, that seem to impact every human on earth in at least some small way. Ask someone at a party what they think of God and they will tell you right away. They won't have to think of a response because we have all wrestled with the question already. Whether or not we believe in God, we all have an idea as to what or who God is. And that's what makes God fascinating to me. God is different from the other universal aspects of humanity. We know, for example, that sex and death exist. But God is nowhere near as revealing. Instead, God acts like dark matter, something unseen and immeasurable, an almost purely speculative substance. We can only perceive of it through the way it distorts those that encounter it. But luckily, we have all encountered it and been distorted by it in some way. I am headed out on the road to examine these distortions, to measure those effects. I believe everyone has a God story, and I want to hear as many of them as I can, the good and the bad. So I'm going to spend time with Baptists, Pagans, Mormons, Jews, Believers, Atheists, Jedi, Muslims, and Mystics. I want to compare notes with my fellow former fundamentalists who are also piecing together a new life in doubt. I want to experience all different kinds of worship and immerse myself in desert and forest solitude. All in an attempt to see if I can make out of the negative space a general size and shape of whatever it is that God is, if it is anything at all. And I am bringing along my trusty Tascam DR40 digital recorder so I can report these stories and discoveries and send them back to you. I don't know what to expect out there. I don't even know what I want to expect. And that, to me, is the pure joy of it. Even if it is a disaster, it's still a story. And as Kerouac once said, something will come of it in the Milky Ways of eternity, stretching in front of all of our phantom, unjaundiced eyes. Whatever the hell that's supposed to mean. Ryan Connell is now the field reporter for Denver Orbit. You can read about his travels and contemplations on spirituality at theholyapostate.com. And there you can also find a link to his Patreon, which contains exclusive content for subscribers, which you should be one. Denver Orbit is written and produced by me and Josh Madison, with Josh doing the editing and sound design. And this really is the last show that Ryan is co-hosting for a while, and he will be missed. And I think his presence in Denver in general will be missed too. We'll still hear from him, though, from time to time, so keep listening for that. And I'll see you again in two weeks. Stick around, but baby, baby, baby.
Hello, my name is Bobby Podcast, and you're listening to the podcast show. <laughs> Bobby Podcast. That's what I should name myself. That's a, that's that's where I will get like. That's where my fame and fortune will come from if I rename myself my last name Podcast. Right. And like Jimmy or Bobby or Johnny or one of those, right? It doesn't matter. It just sounds better. Yeah. <coughs> So if I, like, if I am like, oh, I'm Billy Podcast, then. Then you just have a right to podcast. Like, right. It's yours. When people think about it, they'll you be like. trademark. That man is a podcaster. Do you know how I know that? Because his last name is Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>